Hi again, Journey. Great to see every single one of you today, especially if you're a guest. We're honored and delighted to be in the worship of our great and amazing God with every single one of you. If you remember back two weeks ago, we started into the series through the book of Romans, which we're going to be through over the course of eight weeks. We're picking Romans back up today after a one-week hiatus for Mother's Day. Romans 3 and 4, if you've got a text and you want to turn there. Romans 3 and 4 is where we're going to be today. I'm indebted to a few guys, uh, John Ortberg being one of them in particular for resourcing my study of these chapters in Romans over the course of the last few weeks. There's this word, if you've been around the church very much at all, that we use around Christian circles and around the Big C Church a whole lot. You probably are familiar with this word. The word is saved. Do you know this word? Saved. I'm sure most everybody has some familiarity with that word saved. Maybe you've used it on occasion to describe your personal conversion experience, to explain that occasion on which you got saved, gave your life to Christ, started following and pursuing Jesus. Maybe you, uh, over the course of your Christian experience, have used the word save in conversations with people in your life as you've been pursuing them in concert with God and his Holy Spirit so that they too might be saved. You've been about declaring and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might be saved. That's part of the mission that Jesus has called every single one of us as his followers to. Or maybe for you, your use of that word saved comes after a particularly unpleasant dealing with someone and you walk away mumbling to yourself, that guy or that gal certainly needs to get saved. Maybe you've said that a time or two. And so we have this word in our nomenclature, in our vocabulary, but lots and lots of people have made the word saved out to be this, the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Lots and lots of people in Christian circles have made that word saved out to mean the very minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die, which means that in lots and lots of people's minds, that word saved has been ingrained to mean how much a person is allowed not to intend to follow Jesus and still have them let you into heaven upon your death. But please understand this. Jesus never once said, gather around, come in closely, and here are the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. He never, ever did that. Picture a groom saying to his bride, for instance, now what's the minimum amount of fidelity and commitment that I have to give you so that we can stay married? That's a gnarly thought, isn't it? Imagine applying for a job and saying, what's the minimum amount I have to do to keep this job and keep this paycheck coming my way? Get this, eternity with God in heaven is not any kind of place where you'd want to be just to do the minimum. Heaven is not at all like the post office or the Department of Motor Vehicles. Sorry, I shouldn't say things like that. We're about grace around here. No pointing of fingers, but heaven isn't like that. But having enough faith to call oneself saved is never once presented as here's the least amount of doctrinal truth you have to affirm to make the cut so that you can answer these three magical, mystical questions and get into heaven when you die. 
he never once ever declares the gospel in that kind of light. Saving faith, see, isn't just the minimum amount you have to believe to get in. Rather, saving faith, get this, is a posture of your whole life. A posture of your everything. It's complete dependence. It is complete trust. It is complete belief that enables our receipt of forgiveness, our receipt of acceptance, our receipt of life from God. And we desperately need his forgiveness, his acceptance, and his life, don't we? Because look in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, starting in verse 9, where Paul says we all are. Now, we're in Romans chapters 3 and 4 this week. I'm starting in verse 9 because really, the first eight verses of chapter 3 should still be attached to Romans chapter 2. Remember when Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church, it would not have had chapter breaks. How many of you write letters and have uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, right? The chapter things were inserted by translators much later along the Bible's journey, and so we're just going to leave that sort of up there in chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where I think chapter 3 should actually begin, not that it matters what I think. Well then... Right? It's like a new idea. It's a new thought. It shouldn't just all be lumped together with all this other stuff in verses 1 through 8. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Remember, Paul was a Jew. Should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under, get this, under the power of sin. Big words. Weighty phrase under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And Paul does a really similar thing there in chapter 3 of Romans that he did in chapter 2 of Romans, if you recall. There's a sort of extended diatribe concerning the sinfulness of all of humanity. And notice Paul's word choice there. He isn't just saying that all people commit sins. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't just say all people are sinners. He does say, however, that phrase, we are under the power of sin. He's saying, in essence, humanity, all of us are enslaved by sin. Paul's looking on to the plight of humanity, and he's saying, look, it isn't just that we commit sins. It isn't just that we're in this sort of habitual sinning state. Rather, all people are helpless prisoners of sin. And so you step back from that. It's pretty bleak, and you go, okay, so why in the world does that matter? It matters, see, because the understanding of the problem dictates the solution to the problem, right? If you think back through human history, many great philosophers and moral teachers have been convinced that the basic problem of humanity is that we're what? We're ignorant. 
right? Most great philosophers, most great moral teachers have concluded that all our problems are rooted in ignorance. We just need more knowledge, they say. Just teach people, and they'll be transformed into better and better and better people, and well, then the problems that plague society, they'll just go away. Most, if not all, of societal improvement programs are based on that very approach. We just need to teach. We just need to educate more and more and more. If you remember back to the early 2000s, for instance, there was this blizzard of advertising that hit the American airwaves that encouraged children not to what? Do you remember this? Not to smoke is the answer. Not to smoke. The assumption behind that advertising was we just need to teach kids how foolish and dangerous it is to smoke and then, well, they'll never start smoking. But if we run that analogy out, if we push that analogy through the grid of Romans chapter 3, the problem, though, isn't just that kids are tempted to smoke. The problem, rather, is that a whole bunch of kids are rooted in this environment in which peer pressure leads them to start smoking. Now, if you were to pull every kid in America aside, most all of them would very likely acknowledge they know smoking is a bad habit. They know smoking will shorten your life. Frankly, most of them, I'll bet, would admit they don't really want to start smoking, but they don't have the ability to resist the peer pressure to smoke. They were, are, as it were, enslaved to that pressure to smoke. And Paul's looking on humanity and he's painting us with that exact same brush. He's saying people everywhere, all of us, no one is excluded. We're addicted to sin. We're imprisoned by sin. We're unable to free ourselves by our own power. Nothing we can do will set us free. And thank God he knows this. Amen? Thank God he knows this. And because God knows this, he didn't just choose to send us a nice teacher who would teach our way out of our sin problem. Instead, what? God sent a liberator, capital L, liberator, the one, Jesus Christ, the only one who has the power to set us free from our sins. It's Jesus It's only Jesus. And the view of how we see people, it really matters. Because when we see people in the state that they're really in, when we see our friends at work and our friends who live across the fence from us, our friends who are out at the ball field with, and on and on and on it goes, when we see people all around us as helpless captives of sin, that ought to be a motivating reality for all of us, isn't it? That ought to compel us to help every single person on planet earth to do whatever it takes to connect people with the true liberator, Jesus Christ, the only one fit, the only one capable of rescuing them from their captivity. It's only Jesus who we declare in the gospel who can break through the walls of sin that imprison all of humanity. And then we pick up the next piece of Romans 3. Look what Paul does here. But now, and if you have your Bible open or you have your notes page, you might circle that in your Bible or you might write that, those two words, but now on your notes page, incredibly pregnant words. But now, so right, so up, right up here was this extended diatribe concerning the sinfulness of humanity, right? We have venom dripping from our lips. It is bleak, right? And then look right here. But now, but now what? God 
But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. This isn't some new thing. This has been promised. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. See if this verse sounds familiar. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And lots of times we use that verse, don't we, when we're in conversation with somebody sharing our faith. And oftentimes, I, I've done this, I've just stopped right there. But we ought not stop with the word standard. We ought to keep going, especially. Yet God, here it is. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, not you, Not me, not anyone else. God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. How did he do that? Through Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty for our sin. That's what he's done for you. If you have saving faith, you have been freed from the penalty of your sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead, including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. It's based on faith, saving faith. So we're made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law, not by anything we do, by saving faith alone. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not, exclamation point. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. And it's those first two words of that whole text that many have called the most wonderful words in the whole of Scripture, but now. But now. Now, and you see what Paul's doing. He's saying once we were like this, we had venom, poison dripping from our lips. We were alienated from God, stumbling in the darkness of the prison of our sin, destined for an eternity separated from him. But now, God. But now, God. But now, by saving faith in Jesus Christ, we have this ability to be brought near to the God of the universe. No longer are we kept at a distance. We're brought near to the God of the universe. Now, because of Christ, we're able to enjoy all the benefits of belonging to God. We're able to walk in the light. We're able to understand God's will. We're able to seek and follow him. But now, we have the ability to be destined for eternity, not apart from God, but with God. An eternity that starts right here, right now, today. But Now, only by saving faith in Jesus, everything 
changes. And I want to take us back to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, and I want us to sort of hang out here for a bit. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. There's nothing you can do. You can't scratch, you can't claw, you can't earn, you can't buy, you can't give. You, nothing you can do by faith alone. And what it seems that Paul's doing is he's illuminating what kind of a faith it is that really matters to God. What kind of faith is it that really matters to God? What kind of faith is it that truly saves someone? What kind of faith does it take to actually change a life? What kind of faith is it that actually affects everything we do? And I have to tell you that there is a big difference when it comes to the things that we think we believe versus the things that we really believe, isn't there? There's often a very large difference, meaning that there's beliefs that we think we hold with very deep conviction. But as time passes... As circumstances change, it turns out that those supposed bedrock beliefs aren't so bedrock after all. Just one great example from the scriptures. It's a fantastic one. Sometime after God met Moses at the burning bush, if you remember that encounter, right? This burning bush is there and it's God, God's presence right there in this burning bush and Moses is kind of freaked out and after that, Moses and Aaron, they gather the whole nation of Israel And Moses goes to great lengths to tell them all about God. He tells them all about this burning bush experience. Moses actually shows them these miraculous signs. And look what happens. Look what the Bible says, how the Israelites respond, Exodus 4.31. Then, after Moses had shown them, after Aaron had shown them all this stuff, then the people of Israel were convinced, they were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. They bought in, didn't they? When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. They understood, oh, God does actually care about us. And in that moment, they bought in. In that moment, they believed. They even knelt down and worshiped, right? They're like, Moses, you're our leader. Moses, you're the man. Please, please, please lead us out of the hell that is the slavery of Egypt, please. And so Moses does. They begin the process of getting out of Egypt. But if you flip over in Exodus about 10 chapters later and you read on, as the Israelites now are leaving Egypt, Pharaoh has a rethinking about that decision. Pharaoh sort of wakes up one day and he comes to his senses and he acknowledges it is not a good idea for me to let my entire free workforce just get up and leave. Not very smart at all. And so he musters his armies and what do they do? They pursue the Israelites. And so you have out across the wilderness, you have the entire nation of Israel beating cheeks, as it were, out across the desert. You have the Egyptian army with Pharaoh in pursuit. And what is looming in the windshield of the Israelites like getting bigger and bigger and bigger? What is it? The Red Sea. That's exactly right. The Red Sea is getting very, very big. It's looming Large. Now those very same Israelites who were nearly chanting the name of their great leader Moses just 10 chapters before, look at what they say now. And they said to Moses, the Israelites said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, Moses, leave us alone. 
Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And you read that and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so funny and so tragic all at the same time. Why? Because the Israelites didn't say any of that stuff to Moses in Egypt. They didn't say any of that stuff. They believed. They bought in. They had faith. They trusted. They depended. They said, Moses, Moses, you're our man. If you can't do it, no one can. That's what they were doing. Moses, please get us out of here. And then what happens? When everything is apparently unraveling, when it looks like they're destined to die, they start whining. Why did you do this to us? You did this to us. Moses is like, what? And we do that. We do the exact same thing. I heard a guy talking about one of the most common areas we do this in in our lives today. It's with our money, isn't it? We do this very thing with our money. We read in the Bible, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to what? To receive. We know that verse, right? Jesus is talking to us about generosity. We gather in rooms like this. We gather in Bible studies. We read that verse on our own in our quiet times. We see it, hear it, feel it, and we're like, yes, I believe the Bible. I'm all in. And then Jesus says, so don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Don't be anxious in any way about your stuff, Jesus says. Instead, he says, just trust. Entirely trust our Father in heaven. And we sit in rooms like this, and we hear it in Bible studies, and we might read it in our own quiet times and so, and we're like, yes, I believe that. Yes, I live that. I'm all in with that. I don't trust in money. I trust in God. And then what happens? The economy goes south, right? And sometimes the economy, it stays in the Southland. And we find ourselves personally with less money. And we start to get anxious and we start to get stressed and we start to worry, don't we? And we find out that we believe that we don't trust in money as long as we have it. And when we lose some, when things get shaky, we find out that our beliefs are not at all what we thought our beliefs were, and Jesus does that to us. Jesus presses in on us. He presses hard in on us on our illusions about the things that we think that we believe. But the way that you tell what someone's real core bedrock beliefs are, the way that you tell where and in whom somebody has put their faith is to look at their behavior. Because the real litmus test of what someone believes is what they do what we do, what I do. That's the litmus test. And then we cross over into Romans chapter four. This conversation about faith continues, and it continues with a look at one of the great heroes of Christian faith in God, a guy named Abraham. Let's read just a couple of texts from Romans four, starting with one through three. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And then let's skip down a little further in Romans chapter 4, 18 to 20. 
and when there was no reason for hope, this is sort of the capstone of Abraham's life right here, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, kept believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He exalted God. All over the New Testament of the Bible, we see how Abraham is shown repeatedly to be the model of faith that is credited as righteousness with God. But if you sort of rewind and step back through the history of Abraham's story, you have to ask the question, was Abraham's faith really all that impressive? In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram. That used to be Abraham's name. And God sort of taps him on the shoulder and calls him and says, would you please, Abraham, leave your home. Leave everything that's familiar to you. Go to a place, not that I'm going to tell you, but go to a place that I'm going to show you. And oh, by the way, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And oh, by the way, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And oh, by the way, Abraham, my plan is that you will bless all of humanity on earth. I'm going to bless all of humanity through you, through your people. And Abraham, he just says yes. He and his wife, Sarah, they get up and leave. And the story goes on. They travel to Egypt. And as they sort of cross the border into Egypt, Abraham leans over and whispers in Sarah's ear, you know, honey, I know these Egyptians. You are so hot. I know, I absolutely know one of these Egyptian guys is gonna want you for their wife and what's gonna happen is they're gonna kill me so they can have you. And so here's what we're gonna do, sweetie. We're gonna lie. And you're gonna tell everybody that you're just my sister so they don't kill me. I'll get to live. That's the bottom line. I won't have to die And you go like, where's the faith in that? Really? And so Abraham and Sarah, she's a compliant wife, and so they execute that plan. And of course, Pharaoh himself, the leader of Egypt, he takes Sarah into his palace as one of his wives. Pretty quick, Pharaoh finds out Sarah is actually married already. She's Abraham's wife. Pharaoh comes to find out that God, Yahweh, is not at all happy with how this is going. And we learn that this man, Pharaoh, a man who is supposedly so incredibly far from God, we find out that he's actually more concerned with doing the right thing than God's man, Abraham, is. Where's the faith in that? And you read some chapters later in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, they're in the Negev region now, and they pull the whole she's just my sister thing all over again. They do it twice. Where's the faith in that? Then after 11 years of waiting to have a child, Sarah one day leans over and whispers in Abraham's ear, you know, honey, we've been waiting a long, long time. You're 86 now, I'm 76 now, we're not getting any younger, there's no pharmaceutical companies to help us out with this deal. And so Sarah suggests to Abraham, why don't you just have a child with my servant girl, Hagar? And what's Abraham's response to that? Oh, no, honey, I could never do that. God will certainly make a way. We just need to have more faith. Uh Uh-uh. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, okay, dear, if you think that's a good idea, I'll go right along. If you insist, I'm in. And that whole deal, that was just a colossal disaster from the word go, wasn't it? And then, do you see a pattern here yet? 
13 years later, God shows up. And he tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child finally. And what's Abraham say this time? What's he do this time? Remember this? He laughs. He laughs at God. Sarah laughs a mocking laugh at God. And so you step back from the life and story of Abraham and Sarah and sort of total it all up. Abraham pretends Sarah's not his wife, not once, but twice. He gets the servant girl pregnant. He laughs at God. And Paul, in Romans 4 of the New Testament, says, Abraham's faith never, ever wavered. And we hear that, like, seriously. It looks like it wavered all over the place. But get this. If you step back in history, and you step into Abraham's world, if you put your feet in Abraham's sandals on that day in Genesis chapter 12, the day when Abraham said yes to following God wherever he leads, what we have to understand is that Abraham is starting at absolute ground zero. He's starting at scratch. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no Moses. There's no nothing. Nothing. As a matter of fact, we can see the world that Abraham was born into. We can see the world that he was living in when God tapped him on the shoulder in Genesis 12 and we see it from a look back by Joshua in Joshua 24 too. Look at what the Bible says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, Terah is Abraham's dad, they lived beyond the Euphrates River and what did they do? They worshiped other gods. They worshiped other gods. They lived beyond the Euphrates River and they worshipped other gods. They had faith in other gods. They put trust in other gods. Abraham has no idea at that point in time that there is an all-knowing, all-loving, all-involved, almighty God, Yahweh, who desires a personal relationship with humanity in Genesis 12. He's starting at nothing. He's starting at absolutely nothing, worshiping other gods. And Yahweh reaches out of heaven and grabs him by the tunic and says, go, go. And when you understand that, then it's easier to understand why Paul says what he says about Abraham because of this verse right here. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. Abram just said yes. It's ground zero. He has no idea. He just says yes. He just says yes. I don't know where this is going to end up. I don't know how this is going to go. I'm pretty freaked out by this whole thing. But okay. I'm going. And lots of times we want to make Abraham out to be this like superhero, right? Kind of like an Avenger. Or as the kids say at my house, Avenger. (laughs) Accent in the wrong place. But what we have to understand is Abraham's just a guy. He's just a guy. And what made his faith in God so strong that causes Paul to say what he says about him in Romans 4 is that he never, ever, ever gave up on God. He never, ever, ever gave up on the promise that God had made to him. Sure, Abraham took some detours 
didn't he? He tried to make some shortcuts. He tried to help God out. We do that sometimes. But in the end, what we know about Abraham is that he waited. He waited. He trusted. Complete, total, utter dependence. Complete, total, utter faith. Because there was nothing else he could do. All he could do was trust. And we step back from all of that and what we have to say is that Abraham is in no way the hero of the big God story. God is the hero of the big God story, isn't he? It's God. It's all about him. It's not about Abraham. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about his majesty. It's about what he is doing in human history. And so when Jesus steps up and Jesus says, you know, faith the size of a mustard seed is all that it takes. Ever seen a mustard seed? Very, very small. Like about the size of a head of a ballpoint pen. Faith the size of a mustard seed is all that it takes. Jesus is acknowledging this truth that it isn't the size of your faith that's the issue. It's the size of your God. The size of our God is the issue. It's Him. It's only Him. And so you see, as Abraham and Sarah as their old, broken down, worn out bodies, as they waited for the Son, the one that God had promised them, their waiting actually foreshadows the very Son of the God of the entire universe. The Son whose name is Jesus. The Son who is the object of our saving faith. And I get to tell you today, that Jesus, saving faith in Jesus, entirely trusting in Jesus, putting all of your stock in Jesus is worth your every last ounce of faith. Because you see, it's him. And it's him alone who can set you free from the prison of sin, the power of sin under which we've been. It's Jesus and it's Jesus alone who can save us from the most tragic plight you can ever envision forever and ever and ever and ever separated from God. It's him and it's him alone who gives your life meaning and purpose and what he's calling all of us to today is to get swept away in faith in him. Get swept away in faith in him get swept away entirely in his mission in his calling in his life the life that he intended you to live from the very beginning of time and so you see this saving faith deal is in no way about just the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die not even close it's a posture it's putting your full faith, every ounce of faith in Jesus Christ, the only liberator of your soul, the only one capable of saving our souls. It's him. He's the hero. He's the object 
of our faith. And his name is Jesus Christ, the son of almighty God, Yahweh. The one who tapped Abraham on the shoulder and said, will you go? Will you go? Take your stuff if you would, and I just invite you to set it aside. And I just encourage you to press in with the Lord around these things we've been stirring on today. What's the Lord stirring in you? And I know that lots and lots of us were Christ followers. Lots and lots of us, we possess that saving faith. And if that defines you, here's your challenge. To go and to walk by that faith. That's your challenge. To go and to walk by faith. Just like Abraham did. Every moment of every day, walking by faith. Not caught up in the size of your faith. Not caught up in questions around the quality or durability of your faith. But caught up and swept away in the character of the object of our faith, the one whose name is Jesus. Walk by faith. Go out those doors and walk by faith. Every moment of every day, trust Him. Depend on Him. Cling to Him entirely with your everything, just like Abraham did, because that's all he had. Walk by faith. And then maybe there's those of you, you hear maybe for the first time how you're under the power of sin. And you realize that's life, that's been life. You just know that's me. And then you turn the page and maybe today for the first time you understand that but now offer of God. And maybe what God's been doing in your heart in this time is unspeakable, indescribable by you, but you're in some way being drawn to God. The power of the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Him, inviting you to the gospel inviting you to receive the grace and the acceptance and the love and the life that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to give you. And the invitation to that life stands wide open right here, right now, today. And I have to tell you that Jesus' offer of salvation and redemption, it's free. Imagine that. It's free. And It requires you to put down whatever it is that rules your life right now. Whatever it is that's been calling the shots in your life, you putting saving faith in Jesus means that you're putting all of that down and you're bending your knee to him. You're making Jesus your one and only king. You're devoting your complete and total allegiance to him. 
And if that is the sincere desire of your heart today, you can take that step of saving faith in God by praying along with me. I invite you, if that's you, to pray with me. God, I repent. I get it. I'm under the power of sin. I've been under the power of sin, and I want out. And I realize, Jesus, that I can't earn my way out. I can't buy my way out. I can't figure my way out. I can't learn my way out. I just need you, Jesus, the liberator, the son of God, the one who came to die, the one who came to rise to forgive me. And I thank you, Jesus, for the freedom that is coming onto my life and into my heart right here, right now, today. Here I am, everything. Take me, wash me, make me new. I'm yours, God. I love you and I thank you. And if you're a person who's stepping into faith in Jesus Christ today, that is the most momentous decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing is more weighty. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right here, right now, today. This is a you, me, and God moment. Nobody else is looking around this room. If you prayed with me just then to embark on the saving faith journey with God, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say yes? You can do that now. Just say, yep, I'm stepping into saving faith right here, right now, today. That's me. Free. Yeah, you, yes, absolutely, yes. Yes. Yes, yes, both of you, yes, absolutely. Saving faith today, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's him. He's your liberator, he's your savior. It's not anyone else, it's not anything else, it's nothing you do. It's faith only. You just make sure I catch your eye, please. I don't want to miss you. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and you, absolutely, yes. Saving faith, nothing you do. You can't earn it. But now God, but now God for you, yes. Absolutely. And oh God, we say thank you. Thank you for saving faith. Thank you for giving us the ability to believe and to trust and to step in to you. Thank you, Jesus. And God, our commitment is that we're going to be people who walk by faith, who seek to walk by faith, just like Abraham did. Who aren't getting out tape measures and measuring sticks and yardsticks to measure the size of our faith and so... Rather, we want to be caught up and swept away in you, God, in you, Jesus, the object of our faith, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we put all our stock, both now and forevermore. It's you. Sweep us away, Jesus, in you, in your life, in your mission, in your purpose, in your plan, in your heart. Expand our hearts, God, to include everything that's in yours that we would be bearers of your image that we would run with your heart pursuing 
doing whatever it takes to connect people with you because you're our liberator, you're our savior, the only one. We trust you with our everything and especially, God, our eternity. We trust you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray this and everyone agreed and said, Amen.